because you're looking at God, you're realizing who God is and who you do not need to be. And that you can simply trust in God for who he is. Okay, so I really recommend this book. And perhaps over the summer, as we don't have Sunday evening activities, um, maybe you could take some time on Sunday afternoons for yourself to go through a book like this. Okay, maybe you'd read it yourself, a chapter a week or something, meditate on that, look up the scriptures. Maybe you could even get a few people together that would want to go through with it, you know. Uh, Just because we take these off of coming into church doesn't mean you need to take all of Sunday off from you know, study. You can b- give yourself for an hour or two on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, I already know what I'm going to be working on through a lot of that, just thinking through things, even for my own heart and soul, that'll maybe translate into what I teach. But so, so uh, something like this is good. Um, she makes this comment, we must recover the truth that was obscured by the serpent. Rather than being like God in his unlimited divinity, we are to be like God in our limited humanity. We are capable of bearing his image as we were intended only when we embrace our limits. Image bearing means becoming fully human, not becoming divine. Okay? If we're going to be image bearers of God, we're not becoming God. We are humans reflecting Uh, the perfections, the attributes of God that he intends for us to reflect. So in this, as an example, she talks about God being infinite. Well, guess what? You and I are not. A being that is infinite is only God and it doesn't live within any boundaries or limits. There's a limitness to God. We are not limitless. We are limited creatures by design. And we are supposed to embrace that and actually enjoy that and rest in that limitation of being human that we have. You know, so much of our culture we see trying to break limits. I I like cheesy motivational videos on YouTube, all right? It's just a little secret. I like them, you know. But it's always about we got to break our limits. We've got to, we can be more and push more and and be stronger and be faster and be smarter or whatever else it is it's like we we don't want to rest in our limitations but this is what god wants us to do so it's things like that right so as you're thinking about these incommunicable attributes it isn't just just to think about it with god but there's reasons that we can really rejoice in those and it can affect your life so it's how theology can affect life so i'm really enjoying it and i would recommend it to you jen wilkin none like him 10 ways god is different from us and that's and why that's a good thing okay that God is God and we are not. Um, so, okay. But these attributes that we're looking at in Exodus 34 now are attributes that, as we'll talk about as we walk through them, things about God as he's revealing himself here to Moses and to the children of Israel. Uh, these are attributes that we are to be in our lives, that God intends us to be this way in our lives and uh, this, that is the ways in which we will uh, demonstrate his, his glory in our lives, okay? All right, so Exodus 34, let's look at the passage, beginning in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, this is Moses, of course, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. 
the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, probably thousands of uh, generations is the idea, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, we'll look at this more specifically next week, but look at verse 8. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. So this week we're just going to begin there in verse 5 and probably go through uh, verse uh, 6. Okay, and then we'll pick up seven through the rest next week. And then, like I said, for the last couple of weeks or so, we'll pick up on some other things. Now, if, draw your attention to verses five uh, and six. Notice the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed. That's the word I'm kind of drawing out here. Proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by him and proclaimed. You'll notice on top of your handout, I said the Lord's sermon, right? This is a sermon. The one proclaiming here is not Moses. This is what the Lord proclaimed about himself as he passed by, right? Moses. And uh, this is a sermon that God is preaching about himself, uh, so we should take note of it, right? This is the way God reveals himself to his people. This is the way we, we look into scripture and we allow, of course, we've talked about this. We allow God to tell us who he is and then we accept who he is by faith and we respond as Moses did with worship and humility is essentially the idea. And the whole context here again is Israel's sin, but I'm gonna add one more thing to that, okay? The context is Israel's sin. Remember they had, worshiped the the idol but it's then what's going to happen in verse 10 is there's going to be covenant renewal so here already when God is saying things like and we'll go through them he's gracious he's merciful he's slow to anger he's forgiving he's abounding in steadfast love we're already seeing it in display by him renewing the covenant with his people who the people who deserved obliteration in that moment, right? But God is already going to display these things in covenant renewal, and it shows us that the way God is revealing himself to Moses here specifically is the way he reveals himself to his covenant people and the way that he wants his covenant people to view him and relate to him. This is unique from the proclamation of the Lord maybe to a nation who did not know him. This is the way that uniquely his covenant people were to know him. Now, this is very basic, but Old Testament Israel, these were the people of the covenant. And now the people of the covenant are those in Christ, right? The people of the new covenant. So the way he's revealing himself then to Moses and 
sequentially then to the people of Israel and the way he wants them to know him and relate to him in these kinds of attributes is the same way we can look at him now in this same context, okay? As we are part of the new and better covenant in Christ, right? And so we are his covenant people. So this is the type, this is the way that God speaks to us about himself. So these are the, this is the way God wants us to think about who he is. When we think about who God is and when we're worshiping God and thoughts of God come into our minds as we're driving along in our car, we're at our job or working out in the yard, these are the kinds of things, you see, that God wants us to be thinking about in relationship to who he is. And what we'll find is these are very endearing qualities. They're very endearing. They don't repel the person from God. They actually draw the person's heart towards God, okay? So this is God's, uh, uh, the Lord proclaiming, it's a sermon about himself, context of covenant relationship in renewal. Now notice what he does. First of all, he proclaims the name of the Lord, and then he proclaims again, Uh, The Lord passed by in verse 6 before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. So here three times now, this idea of Yahweh. Remember the name of the Lord, the divine name? We're not going to take a long time on that because we talked about it. Way back in Exodus 3, if you missed that part, back in Exodus 3 is the account of the burning bush. And the Lord appears to Moses in the burning bush, speaks to Moses rather. And Moses is like, who are you? Who should I tell? The children of Israel, you are. I am who I am, right? You tell them I am sent you. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So God's name is a divine name by which his covenant people know him is Yahweh, translated in our Bibles, Lord, okay, with all capitals, L-O-R-D. Okay, so in the Had's reference, remember to that, the concept of self-existence, right, and independence and transcendence and eternality. I am who I am. I have been who I have been. I always will be who I always will be. Maybe even speaks to his unchangeableness and his, in who he is and in his character. Okay, but that is the divine name by which he would be known, remember, throughout all generations up until now. Isn't it interesting how many uh, thousands of years ago, The Lord revealed himself and his divine name to Moses, and then here we are in little old Calvary Bible Church on a Sunday night, right? And we're still, he's still known to us in the divine name. This is what the Lord said that would happen. This is how I'm going to be known throughout all generations. And it is up until this day he is known by his people in this way. Then he says... The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God. Okay. The Lord, the Lord, a God. And I want to park on the word God for a moment. And as I pondered this translation this week and thought this through, a God, I'm not entirely a fan of it. And I I referenced a couple of other translations, as you see in your handout, and they are, I think, a little more clear to us. 
If I say a God, what could that possibly communicate? That there's more than one, right? Okay. So I think that the idea is in the New American Standard Bible, then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. Now in the Hebrew, and I reference this, it's very direct, just that's literally what it is. Yahweh, Yahweh, El, okay, which is God. It's, it's just could be the Lord, the Lord, God, you see. He is the Lord, God, or uh, the NIV, the Lord, the Lord, they do this, the compassionate and gracious God. So they take the descriptors and they attach it to God. The reason those might be a little better, and probably the Lord, the Lord God, okay, is because you don't get that impression that the Lord could be referring, could be saying there's more than one. Now, to us, that's a no-brainer. But you have to understand, in the 19th century, in uh, places like Germany, where the, the theologically liberal uh, villains were emerging and they were in seminaries and they were teaching things that just weren't true about the Bible and denying certain aspects of the Bible. There was a big thing about how uh, Israel at one time was polytheistic and they say, well, if you can trace through Israel's history, they develop their theology over time to become monotheistic. In other words, they all accepted there were other gods. They worshiped other gods. And then over time, they gradually became the worshiper of one true, you know, one God, and that's monotheistic. Translations like that may feed into that. But what I think they're getting at in saying that the Lord, the Lord, a God, gracious, merciful, etc., is the idea that they wanted to communicate, uh, you're, think, you're thinking in terms of the fact that even in this point in Israel's history, they had just come out of Egypt, where they had been untrained and really unlearned about God for uh, 400 years. They had no written scriptures up until this point, and they were saturated in a polytheistic culture. And so in their minds, it's always, who is this God that we're talking about here? Who is this Yahweh? So what they're saying is, this is the, the Lord, the Lord, a God, and now we're going to describe, or the Lord's going to describe, these distinguishing characteristics about who this God is. Do you see what I'm saying? This is who he is as opposed to all those other gods that aren't gods anyway, are false gods. But let me tell you the distinguishing characteristic about this God that you might not hear from all the other gods. See, we live in a culture now that is monotheistic largely, okay? Christian, Jew, growing Muslim. They're all three monotheistic. They all claim one God, okay? But many cultures are still polytheistic. You lived in India, there's millions of gods, okay? There's uh, almost limitless possibilities of different gods that we could have and be worshiping or whatever. And so much of this, much of what you're seeing in these early books of the Bible is God clarifying to his people that he is a God that is unique from all the other false gods that they've heard about. And he's unique in these ways, okay? Does that make sense? So... Um, he is the, the Lord God or a God uh, in, um, they're getting more particularities of him now uh, than what they had even back in Exodus 3 as 
you know, Revelation is progressing and, and the, the clarification was there, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now we're learning about his heart, his character, his essence, his being. What is God like? We know he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what is he like, you see? And that's what we're learning here. Yahweh is a God of distinction. And you could search all of the historic types of gods and not find a God like him. He is unique in these ways, all right? Uh, Micah chapter 7, it's worth looking at actually. If you look at Micah 7, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Good luck, right? Remember Bible drills as kids? I had those. I, yeah, those were, oh, that's old school. I don't know if they do that stuff anymore. They should. Should be doing Bible drills with kids. Micah 7, and in, these, in our Bibles on page 991. If you look at verse, uh-oh, maybe I don't have it here. Oh yeah, verse 18, Micah seven eighteen. Listen how he ends this. Who is a God like you? Listen to some of the language in connection to Exodus 34, right? Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. Did you see some of that back in Exodus 34, right? The idea of the forgiveness. Notice this. He does not retain his anger forever because you, God, delight in steadfast love. Think about that. We're going to talk about steadfast love. But here is a God who delights in it. It causes him delight right? He will, and because they know their God, listen how Micah can talk. Micah in the midst of all the prophets were just saying to Israel, or God saying through them, we're sinning against God. We're violating the covenant. This is why all this disaster is happening on us. And yet, because Micah knows God, he knows who the Lord is. He knows what kind of God he's like. He can say things like this. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Why can he say that? How can he be so confident about that? Because of who he is, right? Who God has shown himself to be. All the way even back to their beginning, really, when they're starting out there at Sinai. The Lord is explaining who he is. They watch him work over all those years. And even though they are in outright rebellion against him, the vast majority of those Jews at this point, he can, with confidence, because he knows who God is, can do that, okay? All right, back in uh, Deuteronomy now, uh, or Exodus, I'm sorry, 34. We think about the word God, it is the word El, or uh, perhaps you've heard it this way in Genesis 1 is Elohim, which is the plural of God, not to be communicated that they are gods or it is, uh, that God is plural. Um, 
but the the idea is God L in the in the the word itself expresses the idea of might and power and strength. So a God or an L is one with might and power and strength. It's not always used in the Bible of the true God. It's used often like we talk about the false gods, right? But when, when any, in any of those cultures, when they thought about a God, it was a God of the strength and power and might. But what the Israelites came to know, learn is that only El, Elohim, is the one with unlimited power, strength, and might, right? He is omnipotent. And the first time they're introduced in their scriptures to this Elohim is where? Genesis 1, right? In the beginning, Elohim, and it's in the context of creation to actually emphasize this power and strength and might, right? That he is the one who, without any resources at all at his disposal, created everything you see just by the word of his power, right? This is Elohim, the one unlimited in power. Um. I think I have you on your handout there, Genesis 17, 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. It also communicates the idea that of authority. And because I'm God Almighty, you walk before me and be blameless. You obey me. You submit to my authority. And... Um, Anybody know that when, when he says there in Genesis 17, 1, the underlying Hebrew is very familiar to us, the name of God, God Almighty. They wrote a song about Amy Grant. El Shaddai, right? El Shaddai, God Almighty, okay? God Almighty, he is the Almighty God. So it's communicating strength and might and authority and power. Um, he is... The God, he is the Lord, the Lord God. And then you have mercy and grace. He's merciful and gracious. These two go together as a couplet. We talked about it uh, a few weeks ago. This mercy and grace really go hand in hand. Uh, I have a couple definitions there on the handout under mercy. God's mercy describes him as perfectly having deep compassion for creatures. Such that... He demonstrates benevolent goodness to those in a pitiable or miserable condition, even though they do not deserve it. So when God sees those who are in a miserable, pitiable condition, which all of the world finds itself in because of sin, we are in our state of, as the catechisms will put it, our state of sin and misery. You think of that word, misery. You know, if you've ever been in absolute misery over something or in sickness or something to that effect, you, you get the idea with this. God's, God has the attribute of seeing that and having compassion towards it, you say. He's compassionate God and his mercy, in his mercy, he moves towards it, Right? As with grace, this perfection does not consider the merit or lack of merit of the people to whom God gives mercy. Now grace, God's grace describes God as 
perfect. Oh, by the way, let me say this with mercy and I'll, I'll make mention of each of these. We're commanded to be merciful people, right? The, the Lord expects us to be merciful people as people who have received mercy. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. That mercy is uh, what we should be. In other words, when we see people in a miserable condition or we hear of people, we see people who are suffering, mercy wants to do what it can do to relieve the suffering. That's what mercy is. And actually, this is a gift. This is a special spiritual gift for some. We often think about spiritual gifts in, in, uh, uh, in terms of the public gifts that you see all the time. But actually, there are gifts that you might not even see happening that people have. One is the spiritual gift of mercy, in which there are some Christians, all Christians are to be merciful. But maybe you've met some Christians that are, it just seems like they see the misery of others and they're prone to act towards it. They want to relieve it. They want to do something about it. Those are acts of mercy. That is merciful. And that comes from God. And when they're doing that, they're actually, uh, they're actually displaying God's attribute of mercy. Okay? And then grace, God's grace describes God as perfectly bestowing favor on those who cannot merit it because they have forsaken it and are under the sentence of divine condemnation. Grace is simply favor. So in itself, it does not include any basis in merit or lack of merit. Now, there is what theologians call a general grace, and I'll attach mercy to it, general mercy and grace, and then a saving mercy and grace. General mercy and grace and saving mercy and grace. What would be the difference in those two, do you think? Right, so we talked about this a little bit last time. So the idea is God shows general grace to everybody. And the idea that even, his, even people that aren't his people are able to live and have families and eat and he feeds them and he cares for them, okay, and they live upon his earth. It's general grace. Mercy, same thing. We see it in medicines. And in, um, every time I'm in the hospital with somebody and I'm praying with them, I try to thank God, especially if the nursing staff is in there, which is a lot of times. So I'll thank God in that context of like, thank you, God, for these people that know how to help and, and uh, show mercy to people. It's really mercy ministries. Uh, uh, they're compassionate minist- ministries is, is a medical field. And, uh, and so I'll thank God for that because even if the person that's being helped is not a Christian, it comes from God. He's so merciful and compassionate that he gives to us this knowledge of healing and helps and medicines and different things. Um, This is why even as Christian people, we don't want to neglect the ministries of mercy to other nations and things. We don't want to be not compassionate to the the plight of other uh, countries. Matter of fact, in many of those places, their misery isn't their own fault in a sense. It's the fault of their governments. And here these are people that are just suffering under uh, poor governments and such. And so we don't want to neglect those things. This, is, this displays the heart of God. But then there's the saving grace of God. And as we looked at last week, just a few weeks ago, that is selective. God 
He said in Romans 9, remember, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. In that context, he's talking about saving mercy. Not everybody experiences this saving mercy and grace of God. Okay, so... There's mercy and grace. Now, this is the one I left you on last time. Remember the, the cliffhanger about God's long nose? Right? He says he's merciful and gracious, and then it's the phrase, he is slow to anger. That is literally long of nose, all right? God has a long nose. So what does that mean? Well, this is nothing more than a Hebrew idiom or expression or figure of speech for God's patience. Or as we have it expressed here, he's slow to get angry, even in the face of provocation, which is also something we in the New Testament are commanded to be. We're commanded to be long-suffering, macrothumia, you know, long-suffering, which means slow to get angry, and uh, even in the face, or it means in the face, really, a provocation. Uh, he is slow to be angry. And it gets that idea of long of nose and that Hebrew expression, probably because something to do with the effect of when a person is angry, you can see it in their nose, that their nostrils flare, you know, or maybe it gets red or whatever it is. And so they got, came up with the idea that, well, when somebody is patient... Uh, it takes them a long time for their nose to get that way, right? Now, interestingly enough, the quick-tempered person that you find emerging in the Proverbs, right? That's who's those quick things. They got a short nose. It's literally just short of nose. So, so uh, God wants us to have uh, long noses. And uh, of course, when they went to translate that, they had to translate it in the sense that uh, we would understand it because otherwise... All the world, except for the Jewish people who read it, would be like, what in the world is this talking about, you know? But um, that's what it is. Uh, This comes from a Hebrew grammar that I have. It says, the theological significance of God's long nose is not to be underestimated. Because God is patient, his people do not perish. Because God's nose is long, he has not treated us as we deserve. It's It's a very powerful image given to us to let us know that the reason we exist is because of that long-suffering nature of God. If he were like us, if God were quick-tempered, can you imagine if God was not slow to anger? If he were quick-tempered, he, I mean, we'd be sunk. And these are, again, these are attributes that in their world and in their mind would have set God so far apart from the gods they knew, who were very volatile, many of them. Don't make them angry, okay? Because you're sunk. But God doesn't want his people thinking about him like that. Slow to anger. And then steadfast love. This is that word that probably most of you have heard, has said, right? The idea of his... This is a unique kind of love. Various translations, mercy, kindness, or loving kindness, or covenant love, or loyal love. I heard somebody call it earlier this week, God's sticky love. Because once he sets it on you, there's no way to get it off of you, right? It, is, it sticks with you, this steadfast love. This is what... 
the Israelites clung to is the steadfast love, Psalm 136 says, endures what? Forever. The whole Psalm 136, you could look it up in our time, but like the whole Psalm is just this, the, the song leader most likely would say a phrase and, and then it'd say, give thanks to the Lord. Why? For his steadfast love endures forever, over and over and over again. So it sunk into their minds, this kind of faithful, covenant, steadfast love, a committed love. Uh, I think Paul is referring to this kind of love in Romans 8, right? Verses 38 and 39, I think I have on your handout. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This kind of covenant love in Christ set upon us as his people, nothing can separate us from. And again, this is a unique love that is for his people that the world outside of Christ does not get to enjoy. Okay, so again, this is covenant love that stays with us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 of this kind of love, love never ends, you see. So it's a faithful, loyal love. And then a word that is directly connected with it all, uh, most of the time in the Old Testament referring to God would be his steadfast love and faithfulness, right? These are also two expressions that go hand in hand. The word faithful, God is a faithful God. Therefore, you can depend upon his steadfast love like we read in Micah earlier. I know he's going to do this for us. He's not going to retain his anger forever. He's going to pardon our iniquities. He's going to restore us. We know that because he's faithful and connect that with his steadfast love that endures forever and you've got security in this and you can have confidence in the relationship to God. He's reliable in everything he says and in everything he does. You can depend upon it. Now, That's as far as we're going to go with the attributes, but let me bring this out here, okay, for us. These, this is the way that God wanted to to approach Moses and to approach his people in the sermon he presents to them and how he wants them to know him. And I'm convinced that even the order in which he's given these attributes, okay, because next week we're going to talk about forgiveness, but also justice, Right and righteousness and punishment that come from God, I get that. But when he when he is a when he is declaring who he is, these are the ones that stand at the forefront for his people. That I am convinced that what he wants us to do is be thinking of these in terms of these as his people, first and foremost when we think about who our God is. See, friends, if we if we think about God first and foremost in any other way, like if we, if we think God is a demanding, exacting God who gets angry whenever we mess up, or we think he is harsh, or we think he is first and foremost, we're thinking about punishment for sin and, and all of those kinds of things, will that not affect the way you think about him and even feel about him? 
That's why I say these attributes and the way he begins this is so beautiful because these are attributes that really endear us to him from the beginning and actually put us at ease a little bit about who God is for his covenant people. As a matter of fact, he said through Isaiah, through Isaiah, they were messing up and God was going to punish them. I mean, they, just, they were doing really bad things. You read the history of the kings of both Israel and, uh, and Judah. The things they were doing, atrocious things. And it talks about God and what he's going to do. He's, he's going to uh, punish them, different things, and he's going to do what Isaiah called his strange work. His, it was his strange work because it's not what he would want to do. He's the God, remember, that delights in the steadfast love. He is a blessing God. He loves to bless and he loves to encourage and he loves to help and strengthen and show mercy and grace to his people. So when it got to the point with Israel, over centuries of their rejecting him, worshiping other gods, actually beginning to take their children and offer them up to false gods, kill their children, pass them through the fire, it says, You think about how much God was provoked over centuries, over centuries, over centuries. And then finally he what? He acts because he's left with no choice for the honor of his name. He cannot allow these people to continue in the land behaving in this way, knowing they are the people of Yahweh. But that is his strange work, right? His heart is most naturally disposed, right? And delights in the the grace and the mercy, and the steadfast love towards his people. Thinking about God in terms like that is much more endearing to him. We read it this morning in 1 John, and he says, perfect love casts out fear because fear has reference to judgment. So those who know the judgment was taken care of in Jesus Christ and they are now in the covenant with God, they know they, they don't have to fear him in that sense. There's no being afraid of God in that sense. Now when we think of God, we can think of him in terms of this covenant relationship of grace and mercy. It changes the disposition. It really does. Otherwise, what can happen, and it happens with me, that's why I'm bringing it out. Some of you are like, maybe this doesn't happen to me, so I don't know, he's weird or something. But what happens with me is I can sometimes think that God is always just mildly irritated with me, right? Because I can't really always fully keep my act together. That could have reference, I don't know, maybe I should sit down and somebody will parse out my childhood and tell me why that happened. But, I, but if you don't approach God first with this idea of steadfast love and grace and mercy, And actually delighting in it, like Jess, I delight to show you steadfast love when you mess up. I delight forgiving you. It's not like I'm doing this begrudgingly or because I have to. This is my heart towards you. When we understand what it means that when God says, God is for us. (laughs) I mean, how emboldening is that? Paul had to go out of his way in Romans 8 just to assure these people, nothing Nothing at all can separate you from this kind of love of God. It just changes the disposition, even of how we get up in the morning and face a day. You face a day and just remind yourself that he is the Lord 
the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving our iniquity in Christ, you see. It will change the direction of our day. I'm convinced of that. Okay, that's our time. We'll pick up with the rest next time. Any questions or comments on that? Any thoughts? Yeah, Flory. Yeah. Right. Yes. Good. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's uh, hits you a lot deeper. Understanding that God's grace and His mercy has nothing to do with anything we can do, much like our salvation. Right. Right. And because if it's anything we could do, like, well, I've been, you know. Since decreased by 30%. So there should be. <laughs> right, right, yes. You know, decreased by 30%. It's not. It's, yeah. It's, it's just full grace and mercy yes. on anything, which is what we would think that God would have for us. I mean, an unmeasurable grace or yes. mercy that is beyond anything that yeah. we as humans do because we're so uh, conditional with our grace. Yes, that's right, yeah. So Yep. I don't know. As you explain it, it just it's it's yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Because all because we will project onto God who we are, and if we're exacting people and we demand you know every thing of justice and we are always angry and different things then honestly really what that could do is reflect we can project that onto god as though he is like this and he's like i'm not like you at all you know i am this way and when you take into account like you said that none of the the grace and mercy as as uh, those definitions i brought out there they aren't taking into account merit whether you've decreased your sin 30% that week or you've done whatever, it's, it's outside of that. And it's in the merit of Christ. And if these people were taught to view God this way in the old covenant, we're in the new covenant. There's a better covenant, right? Uh, and just think of how much more, in a sense, that can expand in our minds and hearts and we think about the perfection of what God has done in Christ for us. So it's good. That's good stuff. Tana? Yes, that's good. Second Timothy 2, yeah. If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Yeah, I like it. That's good stuff. All right, well, we'll pick up, uh, we'll pick up where we left off next week and uh, we'll go from there, okay? Let's pray. Thank you, God, for just showing us who you are. And I do ask that your spirit would enable us to see this all week and maybe each person in this room would be able to meditate on who you are and that you could uh, make our view of you right and thereby giving us peace and really the ability to rest in your love for us. So we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.